Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Killer Psyche ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. A listener note. This episode contains adult content and is not suitable for everyone. Please be advised. As with any rip from the headlines episode, some information regarding the case may have become available after we recorded. If you are a true crime fan, which if you are listening to this podcast, I am assuming you are, you have no doubt heard of Alex Murdoch. His murder trial has been headline news for weeks, and on March 2nd, in just three hours' time, he was convicted by a jury of the murders of his wife, Maggie, and the younger of his two sons, Paul. But here's a brief recap, just in case. Alex Murdaugh, an attorney from a prominent family in South Carolina, was accused of murdering his wife, Maggie, and youngest son, Paul. The investigation led to troubling allegations that Murdaugh embezzled millions of dollars and had a severe and costly addiction to painkillers and possibly connections to other suspicious deaths in the area. Several documentaries news programs, and podcasts have covered the Murdoch family saga and led to the reopening of certain cases. The courtroom drama we just witnessed seems to be the downfall of a family who, until now, has been shielded from consequences for any of their actions. But as we know, it only takes a little bit of wind to open a door. And the Murdoch family's door has just been blown open. From Wondery and Treefort, I'm Candace DeLong, and this is the second season of Killer Psyche. I've spent five decades studying people's minds through my work as an FBI profiler and psychiatric nurse. I've interviewed lots of murderers, including serial killers. And the question of why they did it is what I get asked time and time again. It is difficult to get a satisfying answer without diving deep into their mindsets. So that's what we're doing and I will give you my best analysis in this series of what made them do what they did. This episode is a conversation about Alex Murdoch. Candice, we've talked a lot about the Murdoch trial with Josh Ritter, our legal expert on Mm -hmm. Killer Psyche Daily. I wanted to discuss it from a different angle on our weekly because this is such a huge trial. And we've had a lot of requests from our Killer Psyche listeners to cover this trial. So let's jump right in. Candace, you and I both watched the Netflix documentary on it. It's called Murdoch Murders, A Southern Scandal. What were your thoughts on that? I thought it was outstanding. 
a lot of times documentaries are slanted by the writers and the directors to make a point they want to make rather than just presenting the facts. And I did not see that here. In fact, I watched it twice. And for anybody that really wants to know just the facts about what happened and the people involved and the people are interviewed, almost everybody, it's excellent. For those of you who have not seen the Netflix documentary, it primarily covers the crimes that the Murdoch family has been or is accused of being involved with before the murder of Paul and Maggie. And while the documentary does talk about Alex's financial crimes and his opioid addiction, but the focus is really split between three murders, or I guess I should say deaths. We have Mallory Beach, who was 19 years old when she was killed in a boating accident. And then a young man named Stephen Smith, who was found dead in the middle of the road in 2015. And Gloria Satterfield, who was the Murdoch's housekeeper. And she died two weeks after she had a mysterious fall at the Murdoch's home. There's so much tragedy surrounding this family. And one of the things that was really striking to me was Mallory Beach, her parents. Mallory Beach's family talking was, it was really hard to watch. I can't imagine the pain, but what was also hard to watch and what made me angry is when all the kids were in the hospital that night and divers were looking for Mallory's body. And then the Murdaugh and their attorneys, they were right there in the emergency room. Alex told one person, whispered in his ear, essentially, keep your mouth shut. I'm going to take care of you. And you start to see all these influences on these kids in a horrible, probably the most horrible time of their life to that point. And here is the Murdaugh family and their associates and investigators that have been influenced, not in a good way, are right there. It was sickening for me, Julie. And it also made me angry. It's like, get out of that emergency room. One of the girls, I think the girlfriend of Paul, told the head nurse, keep that guy out of here. And she was referring to Alec. Yeah, it certainly is very troubling because he's like kind of the big fish in town. So there was a certain amount of trust I think a lot of the families had in them. Like Alex Murdarkis, he's going to take care of us. He's going to take care mm -hmm. of this, even though what he was taking care of was his own family in that case. Just want to let our audience know that's maybe not as familiar with this case. Mallory Beach was a young woman who was in a boat with Paul who was the young Murdoch who was killed later, and his girlfriend, Morgan, and three other friends. And Paul was very intoxicated. He wouldn't let anyone else drive. And he ended up hitting a piling in the river, and the boat crashed, and Mallory drowned. The other kids had some injuries to them, various degrees of injuries. And once the boat crashed and the police were called, they all went to the hospital, which is what Candace is referring to, and Alex Murdoch and his father came in and tried to take control over the situation. So Alex's son, Paul, would not be blamed for it. And instead, they tried to make it as though Connor, who was one of the other young men that was in the boat, that he was the driver. 
and the kids did not follow suit with him at that point. It was dark. It was two in the morning. And everybody, all the kids thrown from the bolt, everybody's scrambling and probably in some kind of state of being dazed and confused. What just happened? Why am I in the water? And the only one that did not surface was Mallory. She sustained a skull fracture when she was thrown from the boat, and that rendered her unconscious. And it was heartbreaking to the parents that were involved in this, other than the Murdochs. It felt as though, in their mind, that Alec Murdoch was not concerned about Mallory Beach, that they were solely concerned about how their reputation would be hit and also whether or not their son would be in trouble with the law because of the crash. And it wasn't just Alec and Alex's father, who's also an attorney. The Murdoch family, for those that don't know, this is a family of generational lawyers and generational wealth and incredible wealth, landowners in that area. And right from the get-go, it appeared to me that the Murdaughs were doing their thing in trying to get Paul out of trouble. And the thing about Paul, this wasn't a one-off. He had a long-standing history in high school and right up to the time of the boat accident of being a very, very difficult person to deal with when he was intoxicated. And he was intoxicated a lot. So I got the feeling watching the documentary, and then, of course, I got the feeling because they're presenting it, there was a kind of a longstanding history of the Murdoch family, Paul's parents, getting him out of trouble. He was a problem child, and they knew it. But getting him treatment, that wasn't in the cards, maybe, because being a fine family, they wouldn't want the word to get out that their son has got an alcohol problem. But he did. And a lot of people ended up getting hurt and one dead for sure. Well, that kind of falls in line with the whole family history. There is Alec Murdoch had a 20-year problem with opioids, and I don't know that most people around him knew that. And in the documentary, Morgan, Paul's girlfriend at the time, went to the mother and said, I'm really worried about Paul. He's been drinking a lot. I think there's a problem. And the mother laughed it off. She was like, well, you know, that's just how it is. It reminded me when I was watching the documentary, I felt as if I was watching Dynasty. It was, it was insane. Without all the beautiful clothes. Exactly. Exactly. And it was so sad. I think that's a really interesting thing to explore is the psychology of privilege. You never have consequences for your actions. And then it becomes too late and something horrible happens. One of the things that I didn't know about Paul, the driver of the boat, the younger Murdaugh boy, I did not know what was revealed in the documentary about physical and emotional abuse of Morgan. And she also describes an incident when they were in a hotel one night and he was very drunk and he hit her and she was bruised. He's a real problem. I feel like his physical abuse is off the charts for someone that age, especially when they were in the boat. And he slapped her really hard because 
she wasn't going— And called her a whore. And called her a whore because she wasn't taking his side. And the other friend, Miley, just said, you know, you could tell that wasn't the first time she'd been slapped. And taking his side, meaning the other kids were saying, don't drive, you're too drunk, we will drive. Well, nobody's driving my boat. And look what happened. I think when you're young and you feel invincible— and you go for those rides with somebody or you do those daring things, you never think Mm -hmm. about what could happen. I don't think he intentionally wrecked the boat. I just want to be clear about that. I don't think he wanted Mallory to die. I think that this was unfortunately the repercussions of him not ever having to feel consequences before this. They made a point in the documentary to say that Paul was not the favored son. They made this big point about how Paul was raised by Gloria Satterfield, the housekeeper, who was possibly another victim of the Murdochs. Maybe some of this acting out leads back to that. I mean, he's trying Mm. to get attention. He is an attention seeker. Yeah, yeah. Well, it wouldn't surprise me. And I thought that, too, because they did make a point of saying that Maggie was indifferent to Paul. And I can see where that could cause a kid to be distressed. But you know what, Julie? Lots of kids have problems. A lot worse than Paul did. Here's the thing. We've talked a lot on Killer Psyche about why does behavior occur? Well, behavior occurs because it's reinforced. And behavior that is not reinforced gradually diminishes and becomes extinct. This is the behavioral psychology theorem of B.F. Skinner. Now, fast forward to now and what we're talking about. So what behavior was being reinforced? Every time Paul did something outrageous or wrong, including the boating accident, there were no consequences. And every time they let him, the parents and law enforcement, because of influence of the parents, let Paul out the hook for this, that, or the other. They just bought him his next event, his next bad behavior. So when you look at this from that perspective, you say, well, of course something horrible happened. His bad behavior occurred because it was reinforced. Did he take comfort in alcohol? Maybe was he chronically depressed or anxious about, you know, his family situation? We don't know. But what we do know is his parents knew it and turned a blind eye to it or outright was like, well, so what? As a Killer Psyche listener, you'll love Audible's new pulse-pounding collection of exclusive thrillers that are guaranteed to keep you on the edge of your seat. With captivating sound design, eerie soundscapes, and dynamic performances, their titles are brought to life. I recommend The Killer Across the Table by John Douglas, my mentor at the FBI Behavioral Science Unit, and his co-author, Mark Olshacker. It is great. And as an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from their entire catalog. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash psyche or text psyche to 500-500. That's audible.com slash psyche or text psyche to 500-500. Killer Psyche is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. 
Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. So let's rewind in the timeline for a second. Let's talk about the young man, Stephen Smith, 19-year-old guy. He was openly gay, and he was found on a road in South Carolina. Initially, they ruled his death a hit and run, but that's not quite what happened. Correct. None of what an experienced investigator would expect to find of someone walking in the road and hit by a car. None of the things that should have been there were there. Things that should not have been there were there. And it just went away. Right. Like so many other things, it just went away. Now it's been reopened because of the light that's being shined on basically everything related to the Murdoch family. And the relation there was a rumor. Right. And that's the whole reason why I even mentioned that Stephen was gay, because the rumor was that Buster Murdoch, who was Alex's older son, was in a relationship with Stephen. And that's how it was connected. It is believed that Stephen called Buster when he had trouble with his car. And Buster and some of his friends coming from a baseball game, they came to pick him up. And that's where Stephen met with foul play. We do not know that that's the case. It is a rumor. We have no idea. We cannot verify it because... We do know is his body was found in the middle of the road. Yeah. That's unusual for a pedestrian being hit by a car. What we do know is that he had some kind of skull fracture that is not usually seen in a car accident. What we do know, his legs should have been broken when the car hit him. They were not. Also, he had loose-fitting shoes on. They were on his feet. When people get hit by a car and the car does not have to be going 80 miles an hour for them to be knocked right out of their shoes. So he's in the middle of the road. His shoes are on. He has a skull fracture. He's bloodied about the face and the bones in his legs are intact and there's no bruising on his legs. So that was not a car accident. And that's not where the death stopped. Nope. We also have, in 2018, Gloria Satterfield. She worked as a housekeeper for them. We mentioned her before. She was a nanny for Paul. She was there for, they said, about a quarter of a century. She died about two weeks after she had reportedly fallen on the steps at the family's property. Ironically, Alex had just taken out a huge policy on that particular property. So once she... Like a month before. A month before. Right. And once she died, he told her sons, because she had two sons and her siblings, that he was going to go after the insurance company and get that money for them. Well, he got 
almost $5 million that he never told the family about. He just pocketed it. In fact, the family did not know about that money until after all of his troubles surfaced in the news with his clients talking about that he had pocketed money from them as well. So they're suing him. We find out that Gloria might or might not have been an accident. We do not know how she fell, but the family is contesting the fact that she fell over the dogs that were on the stairwell. There's also speculation Gloria was cleaning one of the rooms, I think that was Alex's room, possibly. She found under the bed a baggie full of OxyContin. And she told Paul about it, but of course she didn't do anything about it. I think she also told Maggie is what the speculation was, that she told both Maggie and Paul. And it was reported that Maggie was upset that she said anything. She said it to Paul as well. Paul tried to get his father to detox. Right. And his father did not want to detox, but he tried it. But regarding Gloria's accident, the speculation was Alec and Maggie knew that Alex's secret addiction was now known to their housekeeper, Gloria. And that possibly she was killed to keep her quiet. The problem I have with that is that she was their housekeeper for a long time. She most likely already knew that Alex had an addiction problem. I don't think you can hide that large an addiction problem from somebody that is in your living space. So the big question mark over this is, was she pushed? Well, because the huge homeowner's insurance policy took out, I mean, multi-millions insurance policy. And then who ends up with the proceeds of that personal injury lawsuit to the homeowner? Not her sons. Now, the implication of all this is that this was a plan that Alex had for quite a while. And the insuring the house for millions for any injuries on the property And then Gloria ends up dead, and Alec tells her son, I'm going to sue my insurance company on your behalf, and you're going to get lots of money. And I was under the impression he told the sons there was no money, and they found out later that there had been $5 million. I think the total amount of money that Alex is accused of stealing from clients is way in excess of $5 million. I'd like to know what the heck was Paul doing with this money? Because there's also a report that Maggie had a forensic accountant look at their books. And that's when she found out that bills were not being paid. And she went to see a divorce attorney. And she ends up dead. By the way, let's not discount the fact that the night Maggie and Paul were killed, that was the same day Alex was confronted by the CFO of his law firm about the missing money that she suspected he had stolen from a client. And the same goes for his fake suicide attempt three months after. He had just been told he had to resign from his law firm. This is the firm his ancestors had founded. These events, along with the impending $10 million wrongful death lawsuit, were huge stressors that could explain him responding out of character or with violence especially since he was already on edge. 
Julie, desperate people do desperate things. Eight and a half million dollars stolen from clients? That didn't happen overnight. That was a long-standing problem. And they do discuss it in the Netflix series, how much money he was paying his drug dealer, the guy that was getting him oxy, and he was paying him so much money and it was way more than the street value of the oxy in the area. The implication being that his drug dealer was taking advantage of him financially. Or that he was spending his money in a different place. They even had some kind of oxy expert on the documentary and looking at, they had a ledger of all the money that Paul paid his dope dealer. And the guy says it was just so much more than would be expected. Yeah, they said it was up to 114 years. They said it would be enough for more than 114 years. What do you think the impact of the amount of painkillers Alec Murdoch is saying that he took 60 plus a day? What is the effect of that on his ability to commit a crime? Well, okay, to say the least, based on evidence, Alec Murdoch's brain and his behavior was drug addled for over a decade. In terms of the amount, because it's an addictive substance, what that means is the first time he took an oxy, an oxycodone, he got high. And the next few times he took it, he got the same high. But it wasn't long before taking the same amount, the same dose pill, did not get him as high as previous doses or didn't keep him high as long as previous doses, say for six hours. And that's the nature of addiction. The human body or mammals, they require more and more to get the same effect as way back in the beginning. Eventually, what happens to most people that are taking the high doses and frequency that he was taking, they die because opiates suppress the respiratory system. And eventually, well, we've all heard the term opiate overdose. Well, what happens is there's such a high level of the opioid in the system, and it affects the ability of the diaphragm to do its job, which is to cause us to take a breath. And the person dies. If we are to believe that he was taking what? 60 plus. Yeah, that's what he said on the stand. 60 plus a day. That would be handsful every every few hours. But then again, okay, Alec Murdoch is not a petite guy. It would take six Oxycontin for a 100-pound person. They took them all the same time on an empty stomach, very well could die, assuming they were not used to it. But here's somebody, I mean, he wasn't taking 60 oxy a day from the beginning. It took a long time to build up to that. So I know he built up a tolerance, but can someone that's taking that many opioids a day, can they actually function? Yeah, if it's a slow, gradual buildup. But does that mean his brain is working properly? No. I mean, come on, if our brain was the same drug adult as it is when it's clean and sober, how would we possibly know the difference? And why would somebody even care to take something that intoxicates them if it made no difference between being clean and sober versus high on something? So he may have looked normal. He may have 
appeared to be normal, going through the motions, driving, hunting, eating food with his family. But his brain was soaked in opioids for years. Well, that's what brings me back to something. The prosecutor said that Maggie was shot while she was running to her baby, right? Mm -hmm. Well, apparently, it's my understanding, the first shot was to Maggie's chest, which would explain she was running to her baby, meaning Paul was shot first, her baby, and she's running to him. Then she is shot. Then she turns and starts running away because the fatal shot, although the chest shot would have eventually been fatal, it didn't drop her right away. She was shot in the back of the head in the dark, which could only be done by somebody that was an expert marksman or had the luck of the Irish going for them to shoot someone. I mean, your head is a small part of your body. FBI agents and law enforcement, when they're being trained to use a firearm, were taught to shoot center mass and the silhouette that you see in movies and TV shows of people shooting in a target range and there's a silhouette of a human figure. They're not shooting at the head. They're shooting at center mass, which is the center of the largest mass of a human's body, which is the torso because it's easier to hit. Makes perfect sense, right? She was shot in the back of the head, running away in the dark, and that takes skill. That is why I'm asking the question about the opioids and his level of functioning. Because if Mm -hmm. you're saying that he had to be an expert marksman to make that shot, and if we are assuming there is only one murderer, which I guess since he has been convicted now for murder, that's what we're doing, how... Does that play out? Because he's taking 60-plus opioids, and he's supposed to switch guns in between a very short period of time because, it, as you said, it, it only took seconds. How is his brain functioning on such a high level that he can switch, he can shoot his son twice and then pick up the gun, a different gun, shoot his wife, and then shoot her again as she's running away and hit her in the back of the head? I see where you're going with this, and it's a perfect question. And the answer is, Alex had to take high doses and regular doses of opioids to feel and act normal. Had he been going into withdrawal, he might not have been able to hit his target in the back of the head while they were running away from him because his body was used to having the opioids. So when, as long as he had those opioids at a certain level in his system, he appeared to be normal to everybody else around him. And, in fact, he could do things with precision that he would not be able to do if he was in any kind of withdrawal from the opioid. They need the opioid to feel and behave and act normally. And therefore, he was able to shoot well, even though he was high. So I guess the two-shooter theory is pretty much gone since they've convicted him. Well, the first time I was called by cable news to do commentary on this story, I had never heard anything about it. I said, send me all the information you've got. Let me go over it. And as soon as I saw two weapons, two different weapons, I said, that indicates two shooters because... If it's one shooter with two weapons, this is what they would have to do. First of all, plan the whole thing out in advance. Then for the confrontation, one person is shot, probably close range. 
what we know now is the other person, Maggie, ran away. And with a different weapon, she is shot. So if one person did it, and I've never heard of such a thing, shoots the first one, puts the gun down, the other target is running, picks up the other rifle and shoots them. They weren't just two different weapons. It wasn't two shotguns or two AR-15s. It was an AR-15, which is a rifle that requires precision targeting, and a shotgun, which does not require such precision because a shotgun precision for hitting the target is not nearly aiming, is not as require, as much required as a rifle, which is a very precise placement of a bullet at a target. And so my thought was, wow, this is interesting. Two different shooters killed two different people on one property. And a lot of people thought that. And I thought that was going to be difficult for the prosecution to overcome. But they did overcome it. We know that the prosecutor does not have to prove motive in order mm-hmm. to convict him. But I could imagine being a part of that jury and seeing this very wealthy man, and yes, he's in some trouble, maybe killing his wife if he had a policy on her, but also killing his son. I think that's where mm-hmm. a lot of the jury might have taken issue with what is being suggested. Totally understandable. They don't need to prove motive because when you think about it, can you really ever prove motive? Motive is in someone's heart and someone's mind. They know why they're doing it. Usually, I have interviewed a lot of people that committed murder. And sometimes I've asked people why they did it and they don't know. So that is why prosecutors do not need to prove motive because you can never really know. In this particular case, what is really difficult, and you and I have talked about that, I can understand someone killing their spouse. It happens a lot. I cannot understand someone killing their son. And for me, I look at that and go, what, you know, why? And I, and I always wondered, well, why kill your son? My answer to myself was, Paul was a problem. Paul was a big problem for the family. It could be said he was bringing the family down. He was just about to go on trial for manslaughter and Mallory's accidental death the night of the boating accident. Before he goes to trial, he's murdered, along with his mother, on their own family property. I know when people are listening to this, they're going to say, that feels a bit harsh to say Paul was a problem, so they had to get rid of him. You know, his father had to get rid of him. Right. Well, I'm searching for motive. Yeah, no, I think that Alex had his own, was so engrossed in his own problems. I wonder if he even thought about Paul. Maybe Paul was there and it was just in a bad place at a bad time. But the two guns really bothers me. And you're right, he doesn't have to prove motive. The prosecutor does not have to prove motive. But I think if I were a jury, I would have a hard time really going to where we just went with it, where Paul was a problem. Mm -hmm. That kind of brings into question, did Alex Murdoch, if we were saying, well, Paul was a problem, right? Let's go with that reasoning. I don't know that they would believe that 
Paul would actually go to jail with his trial because they have so much power. And that was before any of Alex's crimes kind of came to light. Anything that was coming up about mm-hmm. the Murdochs happened after the trial. So I'm wondering if they wouldn't just believe that he would fly through the trial and not get into any trouble. Good point. But maybe not because none of their kids had ever gotten as far as being charged and the charges not being dropped and actually going to court. So now the heat has been turned up. Yeah. For sure. And Paul was a very, very unpopular figure because pretty much the community believed, here's this kid that's been a problem, and now a sweet, young woman will not get to live her life. So I'm going to go out on a limb here and say, and by the way, that did get out, the community knew it, and that Paul Murdoch was kind of public enemy number one, and he was not getting off the hook. But I don't think it's an accident, Julie, that that trial never happened. Paul was dead before the trial. He had been arrested, charged. He was given a low bail, $50,000 for killing someone. And he never makes it to trial. And, you know, it's easy. You can look at it and go, well, Candace, if he's public enemy number one, then a lot of people could have killed him. And absolutely true. Well, the uncle had said he was getting a lot of threats at that point. So that's probably how it could be true. It could not be true. They did investigate the kids that were on the boat that night and their families, and they cleared them, thank goodness. I have a question for you. I wonder, and I think I know the answer to this, would you say the Murdochs suffer from a huge case of narcissism? Oh, my gosh. (laughs) With a capital N. I just wanted to bring that up. (laughs) Bold, 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 bold N, narcissist. Yeah. But I think you don't have to be a narcissist that if you are privileged and wealthy and you do something wrong and get away with it, that you can continue doing it. What I have found and what I do believe about the vast majority of premeditated murder The killer thinks they're going to get away with it, or they wouldn't do it, would they? No, they would not. And that takes a bit of narcissism to think you can pull off a murder in modern-day America and not get caught. Yeah. It's one of the most interesting cases I've seen in a long, long time. And I admit it's hard to believe a father would kill his son with a shotgun blast to his neck. It's really, I could understand somebody being mad at him for killing Mallory might do it, but there's been a tremendous amount of investigation and they've not been able to come up with any other suspects that might have done this. And once the bad investigation got brushed away and the good investigation came in, they would have found that. They probably had a tip line That was nonstop people calling information is. If it wasn't Alex, that would mean two different people or possibly one very skilled marksman with two different weapons did it. And nobody's even been brought in as a suspect besides Alec Murdoch. 
Do you ever wonder where all your money went? Like every single time you look at your bank account? Honestly, it's probably all those subscriptions. I felt that way too, until I got Rocket Money. Rocket Money helped me see all the subscriptions I'm paying for, and it was eye-opening. Between streaming services, fitness apps, delivery services, it all adds up so quickly. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Most people that I talked to did not believe that the prosecution had put on as as that the prosecution had put on a case that would only take three hours for for the jury to decide, yeah. especially since right. the case is built on circumstantial evidence. What mm-hmm. do you think it was about Alec Murdoch that just made the jury say he's guilty? They hated him. Privilege. Yeah. I think I mentioned it, and you and I were talking, there would be certain people that not hearing any evidence yet hated him. Privileged, but you have everything. You lord your power, your legal power over this county, and you always have for generations. And you are now the subject of my decision. And so I think it's human nature to have resentment. And I think a lot of people in that jury box had resentment because you're right. Three hours to come back with a decision on a case that went six weeks? Hmm. Yeah, even closing arguments took longer than their decision-making process. They did. And I I saw the jury, somebody on the jury being interviewed, and he said they did a, a straw poll immediately. All but three were in favor of guilty. And within no time at all, the other three were brought into the fold. The judge did not seem to be bothered, to say the least, by his conviction. This judge... What he had to say, and I think he talked for a good 10 to 12 minutes, was a Rembrandt of commentary for judges don't usually do that. And I thought he was brilliant, was brilliant and heartfelt. And I don't think that judge took any pleasure in what he was doing. Yeah, the judge was so eloquent and he brought us back down to the reality of the murders and not just the salacious details. Mm -hmm. What did you think of Alex's last statement? I didn't do it. Says, I understand your sentencing, but I didn't do it. I'm not a guilty man. Yeah, not surprising at all. First of all, anybody that's going to take the stand the way he did and sob and cry, and he didn't even wipe his nose what, as he should have. I, it occurred to me when he was on the stand crying and, you know, for any of us that it had, have had to ever wipe the nose of a 
crying child, you know what you're dealing with. That's what was happening on the witness stand. And I thought it was for dramatic effect. And so it didn't surprise me at all when he was sentenced, when he heard what the judge was sentencing him to, that he said, I'm not guilty. Here's my favorite. Does this sound familiar, Julie and listeners? Why, I would never, as soon as somebody says why I would never, look for an exit ramp or, you know, sit down and smile because they're about to lie. They're about to tell you what they actually did. And he will spend the rest of his life probably saying that. Maybe because the reality of what he did in a panic moment, well, though it was premeditated, but when something he felt he had to do, maybe now the reality is set in, oh my God, what have I done? Or it could be that he's a stone cold psychopath and he was playing to the cameras and hoping that somebody out there will say, you know what? I believe him. And another possibility, and there's many, but another possibility is he's trying to convince himself. You can lie to people. You can lie to a jury of 12 people. You can lie to a judge. You can lie to prosecutors, but you can't lie to yourself. You can say the words, but you know what happened. And maybe that makes him feel better. I didn't do it. I would never do it. So you all must be wrong about me. So like we discussed before, it sounds like there's a little bit of narcissism at play. Gee, do you think? Yeah. I think just walking around that county being a Murdaugh is a lot of food for narcissism right there. Yeah. The Murdaughs own that county. They owned it, and they owned it for generations and generations. It'd be hard not to be a narcissist. Not only that, it takes a, a supreme narcissist to plan a murder of your wife and kid and think you can get away with it. But only a narcissist would think that. And... If anybody's planning a murder, if they allowed themselves to think, you know what, I'm not going to get away with this. Guess what? They'll put the gun down. They'll stop. I'm not, I don't want to go to prison the rest of my life. And I don't want my standing in the community, in this case, would be a profound motivation for him. You wouldn't go through with it. But he did because he believed he could get away with it. Well, he thought wrong. He thought wrong. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Killer Psyche ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey. From Wondery and Treefort Media, this is Killer Psyche. I'm your host, Candace DeLong. This episode was written and produced by Lisa Ammerman and Julie Burke. Director of research is Anne Liu. Mix and sound design by Joshua Morales. Supervising audio producer, Maxwell Carney. Head of audio, Tom Monahan. With audio assistance from Katie Corpy and Matt Dyson. Editorial support, Alexander McCall. Host support from Allison Sandler. Renee Levesque is our production manager. Jada Williams is our production coordinator. Oscar Guido is the producer from Treefort Media. From Amazon Music and Wondery, producer is Stephanie Wachnin. And the co-executive producer is Julie Burke. Lastly, 
Our executive producers are Kelly Garner and Lisa Ammerman for Treefort and Marshall Louie and Aaron O'Flaherty for Wondery. The series is produced by Wondery and Treefort Media. It's all a lighthearted nightmare on our podcast, Morbid. We're your hosts. I'm Alina Urquhart. And I'm Ash Kelly. And our show is part true crime, part spooky, and part comedy. The stories we cover are well-researched. He claimed and confessed to officially killing up to 28 people. With a touch of humor. I'd just like to go ahead and say that if there's no band called Malevolent Deity, that is pretty great. A dash of sarcasm and just garnished a bit with a little bit of cursing. This motherfucker lied like a liar like a liar and if you're a weirdo like us and love to cozy up to a creepy tale of the paranormal or you love to hop in the way back machine and dissect the details of some of history's most notorious crimes you should tune in to our podcast morbid follow morbid on the wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts you can listen to episodes early and ad free by joining wondery plus in the wondery app or on apple podcasts